Thank you, Jordan, for leading us thus far, and uh, the Sunday school children are exiting to their various classes. So let's open the scriptures again to Second Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're just going to read two verses this morning. That doesn't necessarily mean a short sermon, I'm sorry. <laughs> There's a whole lot in here and so I'm just going to read verses 9 and 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Trust God will add his blessing to his word this morning. Thus far we have had a wonderful time in chapter 5, contemplating the eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That's what it states in chapter 4 verse 17 and then up until our, and including our verses today, we are given some explanation of that eternal weight of glory. Of course, this glory includes, as we have looked at briefly over the last few weeks, includes a body upgrade. Okay, We're going to receive new bodies, transformed bodies, bodies that are fit for heaven and eternal abode with the Lord. We'll also see and find and understand the ultimate will of God fulfilled in us. He hasn't finished with us yet, folks. He's still working with us and he's going to work with us yet. But above all, as we looked at last week, we will be at home with the Lord forever. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? To be at home with the Lord. That's what the Apostle Paul looked forward to. And these are tremendous realities that we can all, as believers, look forward to. We grasp hold of them. And and we live in the expectation that these truths that we have come to understand will become realities for all believers when the Lord returns to rapture each and every saint home to be with him. So they give us tremendous courage, don't they, to face the world as it is with all its difficulties. No matter what, these truths give us tremendous courage and also they motivate us to live accordingly in anticipation of this future glorious reality. And so what I mean by that is We are motivated to live in the here and now, every day of our lives, we are motivated as if the Saviour from heaven were going to appear tomorrow. Is that how it is? That's how it should be, right? After all, Scripture is very clear on this. Just as the Lord's first coming was prophesied and it came to pass when Jesus was born, So is the second coming 
prophesied and spoken of and, and referred to over and over and over again. But there's one little codicil that the Spirit of God would have written on that coming and find that in Matthew 24 and Mark 11, which says this, No man knows the day or the hour when he will come. So no man knows when this next cataclysmic event for the world, which includes our rapture home to be with him, will come to pass. No one knows when that will begin. And so just to make sure you're all with me on this, I want to ask you a quirky question. If you knew the Lord was returning at midnight tonight, you got that? If you somehow knew the Lord was returning at midnight tonight to snatch every true believer home to be with him forever, those who have died in Christ and we who are alive and still remain, if you knew that he was returning tonight to do that, as we have in First Thessalonians chapter 4, what would your afternoon look like? What kind of things would you rush around and try and settle this afternoon? Maybe you'd need to do, I guess we all might do, some serious repenting. Maybe you might reconcile and go all out and phone people or whatever or reconcile with people that you have fallen out with. And when it all comes down to it, it's over some ridiculous, stupid thing in the light of eternity. Or maybe you'd rush out finally and tell that friend that you haven't had the courage to and tell them about the Lord. Maybe that's what you might do. Maybe that you might need to put matters right with family members. Whatever, I'm sure there would be plenty of action on our parts. Simply because this, simply because up till now we have failed to be motivated to be ambitious for God's glory at the coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, our ambition for the glory of God has really, folks, fallen on hard times and has been dulled by our lack of motivation. You see, the rubber hits the road here, right? Are we men and women of faith or what? We're men and women of faith, right? We don't walk by sight, as we looked at in the last section. But there is something else here that, that packs an even more powerful punch, can I say, to our motivation to live for the eternal weight of glory. There's something else here ahead of us. And this is, as our slide shows, the judgment seat of Christ. You see, Paul in these two verses that we have read under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit gives us more truth and gives every believer reason, every reason, to be motivated to live life ambitiously with a purpose. We find it in these two verses. Our first point is the purpose of being righteously ambitious and we'll see this in the first section of verse 9. And so what Paul does here in this, here in this verse is, is he begins the last list of his motivations for Christian living with therefore we also have as our ambition. You see that? He says therefore. In other words, owing to what you've already read, therefore we have 
also have as our ambition. Now, when we think of the word ambition, we mostly associated it with a with a secular kind of thinking and it usually comes across with a negative spin. And we all know too well the ambitious person who goes all out and makes reaching his or her earthly goal a, a lifelong priority and they don't seem to care who they step upon. You know those kind of people, right? We have them in our world. And so this kind of person, whether it be climbing the corporate ladder, with making more money or gaining political power or making it big on the sports field or even being overly ambitious for the family, they all come with a negative price tag. This kind of ambition sadly comes at the expense of leaving God out of the picture or living life under the sun as we have been learning. So ambition of this sort is not what Paul has in mind here. Paul is speaking of righteous ambition, ambition that every Christian should be fully plugged into, and that includes every single believer here this morning. Even if, by nature, just to make sure you don't feel excluded from this, that you don't wiggle your way out of it, even if by nature you are an indecisive person and maybe somewhat introverted, there is no excuse for you not to be righteously ambitious. Being selfishly ambitious is sinful and it's condemned in Scripture, absolutely. Those attending home groups, got to have a plug for home groups here, if you don't attend one you're missing out. Those attending home groups would have been introduced to a certain character named, well I've heard, I've heard the most interesting ways of pronouncing this guy's name, but you'll be with me. Those attending home groups would have been introduced to a guy called Adonijah. That's who I'm going to stick with, okay? You remember Adonijah? First Kings chapter 1. He was selfishly ambitious, wasn't he? He exalted himself, the scripture says. He exalted himself and he tried to take the throne of Solomon, who was, by the way, God's appointed. Whereas being righteously ambitious, it's a hallmark of what genuine Christianity is all about. Adonijah was selfishly ambitious. Paul uses the word ambition here in a legitimate sense. It's a little bit like that word jealous, you know. We also think of the word jealous and instantly there's a negative spin comes to it in our English language and, and, um, and that's what we mostly see in the world, uh, the kind of jealousy that breeds all sorts of strife and sin and, and ugliness. But there is such a thing as righteous jealousy. So it's a similar thing here. After all, God is a jealous God, did you know that? He's a jealous God and it's often referred to as such. For instance, Exodus chapter 20 verse 5 when warning Israel about the dangers of false worship and worshipping other gods, he said this, you shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. There you are. That's just one of many. Paul picks up the same idea about being righteously jealous and he says to the Corinthians in this epistle in chapter 11 verse 2, For I am jealous for you, this is what Paul says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband as so that to Christ I may present you as a pure virgin. And here our model, 
the one that we can rightly imitate because he imitates Christ, Paul says we also have as our ambition. This positive ambition word has in mind utter devotion. It has in mind a going all out and loving what is honourable, what is virtuous for one single cause. You got that? That's what it has in mind here. In other words, out of sheer devotion to Jesus Christ who redeemed him, Paul desired, he strove, no matter what, to give honour to Christ. Now that's the ambition Paul is speaking of here. In other words, there needs to be a motivating drive, a selfless ambition, a selfless, ambitious passion, can we say, to live honourably and to live excellently and splendidly for an ultimate cause. So we don't just live out those things, in other words, to feel good about ourselves or for others to look upon us and give us honour. No, no, no. We do those things and we live out those things out of devotion for Christ for a cause. Which is what? What is that cause? To be pleasing to the Lord. You see that in your text? That's what his ambition is all about. Folks, there's no higher or greater ambition in heaven or on earth than this, to live in order to please the Lord. That should be our purpose statement of our lives, if you want to write one up. It should be the purpose statement of every Christian. And by the way, that's genuine Christianity in action to be pleasing to the Lord. So now we need to ask, what does it mean to be pleasing to the Lord? It carries the idea, and interchangeable with the Greek word, acceptable. Paul uses this expression a number of times in his letters. He urges believers in Romans 12.1, what does he say there? Present your bodies as holy and living sacrifices, acceptable or pleasing to the Lord. He again uses the same word to encourage the Ephesian believers there. And he says, you need to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Ephesians 5.10 Philippian church don't get escape from this either because when they financially supported Paul, he could describe their action as well-pleasing to God. There's the same word again. So to be pleasing to the Lord has the idea of, of responding to every issue and circumstance of life in such a way that it's acceptable, it's pleasing to Him, to the Lord. Now we all know about obedience, right? We all know about obedience. We all want to obey the Lord. Why? Because we love Him. And if you refuse to obey the Lord, well, it holds in question whether we love him. That's pretty simple. So if you've got an area in your life where you're being disobedient to the Lord, that's a dangerous position to be in. Because if you are a believer and you're being disobedient, don't wait around too long because the Lord will discipline you if he so chooses to do. So we all know about obedience and we want to obey the Lord. And that is, by the way, the duty of every believer to obey the Lord. But to be pleasing to the Lord shifts up a gear, steps up a plate. It's something more. 
This goes way beyond doing the right things, folks. Honestly, it does. Way beyond doing the right things. It's more about being right in character and way, the way we do those things rather than just focusing on what we do. You got the picture? Of course, you know to be acceptable and pleasing to God is often not acceptable to man. And dare I say, even less acceptable to our own selfish agendas. In other words, we tend to bend easily in order to please men and even bend further to please ourselves under the subtle pressure of our egos. You ever noted that? No, you wouldn't have. (laughs) I do. I notice it every day. Lord, forgive me. Remember Pilate? Classic example of being a man pleaser. Under the pressure of the people. And scripture records it in Mark 15. Wishing to satisfy the crowd. Get that? Wishing to satisfy the crowd. He handed Jesus over to be crucified and scourged him on the way. Well, Paul was under huge pressure the very time he was writing these letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. He was under huge pressure in his day and at this particular time to compromise his righteous ambition to please who? To please false teachers rather than the Lord. Under huge pressure to do that. His character, his ministry, the gospel that he preached, his methods in ministry, they maligned him. They hung him out to dry. They really did. He was not fretful over those circumstances. He was not fretful over the opinions of men. Why? Because his one ambition was to please the Lord. He wrote to the Galatian believers, "For I am now seek, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men?" If I was still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. His ambition was constant. In his present experience and his future presence before Christ, he wanted nothing else but to please the Lord, to please Christ. He refused to bend and become a man, mere man pleaser and he refused to be hijacked from his goal of pleasing the Lord. Brothers and sisters, have you a righteous ambition that goes all out to be pleasing and acceptable to the Lord? Have you? Yes, such a choice of purpose hurts. And it will cost you, dare I say. It may well bring to you ridicule and scorn from those who should know better and sometimes worse from those whom you also love. It may cost you friends, it may cost you love of family, it may cost you your job, and even it may cost you your life. But being righteously ambitious to please the Lord in all things, we absolutely must be. May your and my life be such that it gives witness and says, like a banner that's over us wherever we go, here is a man, here is a woman who ambitiously pursues a God-pleasing life. Amen? That's how it should be, folks. That's how it should be. Because belief and behaviour, they cannot be separated. They cannot. 
Paul's belief about his glorious future prompted him to diligently pursue in his life on earth only that which was pleasing to the Lord. Is that how it is with you? This brings us to our second point. The scope of being righteously ambitious. We see this in the last part of verse 9. In the middle of verse 9 we see the or sorry, we see the extent, it's in the, in the middle part rather, uh, of verse 9, the extent or the scope of Paul's ambition. In other words, his ambition had no limits. There was no areas in his life that excluded this one priority to please the Lord. There, there was no divisions or, or dualistic tendencies like we often have where we divide the sacred into one area and the sacred into another. And we kind of say, dare the twain meet. So in Paul's tent making business, we know that he was a tent maker. In his relationship with his friends and fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, in his ministry, his single minded devotion was centered always and at all times on pleasing the Lord. His work wasn't in the secular box where the Lord had nothing to do about it. No, 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 no. Even in his work, he wanted to please the Lord. Is that how it is? Yes? Should be. Don't consider your work as my little world and a secular world. No, no, no. You are God's person and he's interested in every minute of every hour of every day. But there is more here. He's just been a saying in verse 8 that he would rather be absent from the body so to be at home with the Lord. We had that last week. And here he was speaking of, remember, his possible death that would promote him to a better place where he wanted to be at home with the Lord. And that's where Paul and every genuine Christian wants to be, right? We want to be at home with the Lord. Then we see this word in the verse 9, Therefore. In other words, because of this impending reality, because he daily stared death in the face, and if there anyone did that, it was the Apostle Paul, he was left for dead. I believe actually did die when he was stoned one time. He was shipwrecked how many times? And he was stoned, he was chased out of town. You know, all those things that happened to Paul. This guy stared death in the face every day. And because death might come upon the Lord, come before the Lord returns, he understood that his ambition to please him while he still lived, it wasn't dampened. It wasn't dampened. Now some of us might give up on that, right? This is too much. I can't handle this anymore. And we dive into a cave or something and uh, become introverted or whatever. But no, no, no. Paul kept his focus on the, on the realities of heaven and what lay before him and because of that, his life on earth was never dampened in regards to pleasing the Lord. In other words, Paul was really hanging out to live on. He wanted to live on until the Lord came and raptured him home. That's, that was his first choice. I want to be here when the Lord raptures me home. I don't want to necessarily die. Whatever that, however that may be. I want to be raptured home. Isn't that what we all want? I don't want to die. It's not my first choice. My first choice is to be raptured home. But Paul had a second choice. His second choice was to be at home with the Lord even if it meant his death. That's a wonderful 
backup plan that the Lord has for us, isn't it? That's awesome. Us Christians are on a win-win situation, you know. We've got nothing to be glum about, nothing to be depressed about, absolutely nothing. And in coming in his third choice, that was to carry on living, which he cites in Philippians chapter 1, verse 24. This is what he says to the Philippines. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. See, he had a, such a love for the Lord's people. He saw the need to minister and build them up and show love and edify them. So that was a third choice. So although Paul knew of these bodily imperfections that he had, and like we all have, although he knew that one day he would be made perfect with a transformed body, he knew that was ahead of him, he still longed for, no matter what state he was in, to please the Lord. That was the scope, that was the range of Paul's ambition. Whether here on earth or at home with the Lord, his one ultimate goal was to be pleasing to the Lord. You see, folks... Paul measured his time on earth very seriously. Very seriously. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 16 tells us or exhorts us, making the most of your time because the days of evil. There's the same idea. Or the old King James will have it, we need to redeem the time on earth because the days of evil. In other words, make sure every moment that God gives you on earth Count for him. You see, Paul weighed up every hour using the Lord's scales to measure its quality. That's what he did. He measured every hour on the Lord's scales. He he says that this took tremendous amounts of self-discipline too, by the way. We were just sharing in our theology class this morning something about this. Tremendous amounts of self-discipline. Back in the first letter here, in chapter 9, verse 27, this is what Paul gave testimony of. This is what he said. I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So he knew that he could waste his time. He knew that he could fritter his time away and be taken up with things that are not pleasing to the Lord. He did not want to be disqualified. And so how did he do that? Part and parcel was it of disciplining his body. It is the idea of, of beating his body. It doesn't mean literally beating his body, but it means maybe, as an example, getting up at 7 o'clock in the morning and spending time with the Lord in prayer and reading. It means organising your time so that you could be out at the church prayer meeting. It means organising your time. It means discipline. You got that? Is that how it is with you today in your lives? When you're in the office, in the kitchen, on the construction site, behind the wheel of a vehicle, even in your retirement, are you mindful that your actions and your attitudes and your motives will either be pleasing to the Lord or they will not be? That's a serious question we all need to challenge ourselves with and I need to challenge with myself with. Because, folks, there will be a day, there will be a day when the devotion of every believer's heart toward the Lord will be assessed. A day will dawn when our devotion, our ambition in the whole scope of our Christian lives will be evaluated. 
Will our life of service as a Christian be acceptable and pleasing to the Lord? Or will much of it end up in a disqualification bin? Only fit for burning. We're going to find out one day, folks. We really are. We're going to find out. We're going to experience this divine evaluation. And, and, and what I say, and because we know that we're going to experience this divine evaluation, this should motivate us like nothing else to be ambitious to please the Lord. Amen? This brings us to our third point. Our righteous ambition under the divine scrutiny. We see this in verse 10. You know, one of the greatest motivations to achieve or to do something well is knowing the end product will be scrutinised and valued according to its quality. When I was much younger, much younger, I took up sheep shearing as a vacation. Seriously. It paid very good money, which was an enormous attraction, being a young fellow and who needed money. Strong in the back, weak in the head probably, but there you are. But I soon also learned that sheep shearing was highly competitive, which I come to love and which I really enjoy. The delight and elation of increasing your daily tally and possibly shearing more sheep than the guy who was right next to you and the other one that was there was adrenaline pumping stuff. It motivated you to push your body beyond what you could think it could do. But there was one catch to all that. You see, at the end of every run, there were normally four runs in a day. If you're a nine-hour day, there was five. Your shorn sheep were in a separate pen and they were examined not so much for the quantity or the number of sheep, but for the quality of the shearing by the boss at the end of the day. The shearer himself was not judged as to his person, but his work was scrutinised and weighed in the balances to try and find its true value. Folks, a poor illustration, but let us get back to the text. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You got that? I want to make very clear at this point that this judgment seat or bema in the Greek has nothing to do with unbelievers. You got that? It's got nothing to do with unbelievers. But if you're not a Christian here today, don't think you're off the hook because there will be a judgment and a sentencing for unbelievers and that is called something else. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. And if you want to read about that, most clearly you go to Revelation chapter 20. It's also mentioned in Matthew and uh, some of the Gospels and, and back in Luke and back in Daniel. And this, is, this Great White Throne Judgment is when every unbeliever who has ever lived will stand before God. The Lord speaks of this judgment as, as the resurrection of judgment in John chapter 5 and verse 27. This is when 
The unbeliever's life of sin and rebellion and every evil thought and even their false religious worship, it will be judged and will be justly cast into the eternal lake of fire. So there will be a judgment for unbelievers. You got that? This is when, by the way, in shock horror, in shock horror, many good religious people will cry, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform miracles? In other words, my, we, we went through all this religious ceremony. We were only doing what was right and good. The answer from the Lord of that great white throne judgment day will be, depart from me. You who practice lawlessness, I never knew you. Find that in Matthew 7. Now that's the judgment preserved for the unbeliever. And might I say, none of us here need to ever experience that. We've got the opportunity now of being shifted and transformed from darkness to light. No one here needs to experience that. What we have in our text is not this great white throne judgment, okay? What we have in our text is the judgment or examination for believers only. And just to clarify this a little more, we need to understand that there are three judgments, right? There are three judgments spoken of concerning New Testament believers in the Scriptures. Three judgments. There is a past judgment, there is a present judgment, and there is a future judgment. The first past judgment was when all our sin was judged and dealt with forever in the person of Jesus Christ at Calvary. You all know about that because we look back to it, remember it when we have communion and our faith and our eternal life is based on this judgment. This was when Jesus Christ himself took upon himself our sin and he became our sin bearer, he became our substitute and God judged our sin in Jesus Christ. Our sin fell upon him and so God treated him, his beloved son, sinless perfection son, as if he were the sinner. What a judgment. What a judgment. And Jesus suffered that just judgment of God against against sin in our place on the cross where he died so that all our sin may be forgiven and never, ever, ever charged against us. This is the believer's past judgment. That's why Paul can say, by the way, therefore, and we can rejoice in, there is now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 and 1. Praise the Lord for that, eh? Then there is a present judgment. This is raised by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 to 28-32. We often read this text when we have communion. This is where believers are called to examine themselves, in other words, judge themselves, or to carry out a personal judgment on their own actions and their own thoughts, their own speech, their own motives, and put them right before God by repenting. It says there we're to judge ourselves rightly. We need to be doing that all the time, by the way. Otherwise, otherwise, we put ourselves at risk of experiencing God's hand of discipline to bring us back into line for his glory. Haven't we got a gracious God? I would rather judge myself than have God discipline me to bring about the same purposes. He gives us that grace and opportunity. Then finally, there is this judgment, this future judgment that we have here in the text. Okay? And so, if our sin has been dealt with, as we just sort of think back, what is this judgment all about? 
Firstly, let us learn what our text says about this judgment seat. This judgment seat, or bema seat, as the Greek says, it gains its title, and it was a, uh, a fairly normal kind of a thing in Paul's day, it gains its title from the Greek games, where from a raised platform, contestants in athletic games received their awards. A little bit like the raised stage where our Commonwealth or our Olympians stand up on to receive their medals. It was also a place where the deeds of a person were examined. The deeds of a person were examined and, and this resulted in that person either being exonerated or disqualified in any given matter. Okay? So he wasn't examined, but his deeds were examined. So what we have here is judgment, not for sinful deeds of the believer. I want you to get, understand that. It's not for the sinful deeds of the believer. Why not? Because all our sin, past, present, future sin, has been dealt with at the cross, and now there is no more condemnation. Praise the Lord. They've been buried in the deepest of sea. They're as far as the east is from the west, the Psalms tells us. And so sin forever has been dealt with. Haven't we got a gracious God? So this is not a judgment where our sin will, will be brought before us. What we have here should motivate us, folks, like nothing else should. What will be examined at the beamer seat for its exoneration or disqualification is our life of service to the Lord. It will not be how many churches, new community churches planted and that I've been or you've been involved in. And it will not be about how many sermons you've preached or how many per- people you've witnessed to or how many prayer meetings or how many times you've read the Bible. It won't be about those things. What we will be examined is one by one, each one it says there, will be the quality of our service rendered unto the Lord. That's what's going to be examined. Every hour of our life as a believer will be brought under the divine scrutiny as to whether those hours were pleasing to the Lord or not. Our motives will be checked. Our attitudes will be exposed. Everything about our lives as believers, as believers will be laid bare before the all-seeing eye of the Almighty Saviour. And we will be recompensed accordingly. or the service that we have involved ourselves in will be disqualified. We say recompensed for the deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. In other words, this beamer seat will be a time when upon examination of our deeds, we will receive back what is due. That's what, that's what the believer is going to receive. Some will receive crowns. Many crowns. You have the idea when Jesus in this parable says, and some will be ruler of ten cities, and, and, or five cities and ten cities, there'll be rewards. Don't get the idea that you're going to be, uh, you're going to be squashed and disqualified and, and cast out. No, that's not the picture here. But don't you want your service to the Lord to be pleasing? Absolutely. And so if we're serving with a motive anything other than just bringing glory to God and being acceptable to him, just stop doing it. And come and tell someone, hey look, you know, and I could even be doing this, it is possible for even preachers to stand up in a pulpit and be doing this out of a wrong motive. And when I get to heaven, it could be not pleasing. 
All those sermons you preached. I'll use them how I used them how I wanted them, but your service is disqualified. What a terrible thing. God forbid that. The good or bad spoken of here, some people get hooked up on this. It's, we need to understand it's not about moral goodness or badness. There's a different word for that in good or bad in the scriptures. Okay, our sin, when we come to the moral good or badness, our sin, which is a sin, any sin against God, we, that's already been dealt with, right? We've talked about that. The good or bad is all about our motives and our attitude. If our service to the Lord is driven by pure motives to please the Lord, to glorify God, that will be valued as good. Anything outside of that motive will be a total waste of time and considered as rubbish in God's eyes. Our service for the Lord will either be of eternal value and come out in the, in the, diviners, in the, in the divine examiner's fire and, and will come through the testing fire, as it were, as gold, silver and precious stones as we have back in the first letter of Corinthians. Or our life of service will be tested and proved to be of no value to the Lord and the test will prove that they are but wood, hay and stubble, only fit for burning. First Epistle of Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 11-15, has all that there. My dear people, I love, the, I love the future reality of the transformed body. It's awesome, right? I think you get taken up with this as you get older. <laughs> and every reason... But we love that idea. And also seeing the will of God perfected will be an awesome thing, an awesome concept, an awesome reality. And to finally be at home with the Lord, what a wonderful reality that will be and what a wonderful motivation. That is motivational truth to live a life pleasing to the Lord like nothing else. Because he first loved us. And so now we love him. He deserves our all, right? And because of all that, here is motivational truth number one. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Praise the Lord. Amen. Shall we pray? Our Father, we bow humbly before you. We're talking about the mercy that we need and it is true. Father, we do need mercy every day. Your mercies are renewed every morning. And you are so gracious toward us. You not only have saved us, but you keep us and preserve us and, and have promised us an eternal, glorious future. But Lord, when confronted with realities, we confess that our motivation to live a pleasing life to you has indeed fallen on hard times in our lives. And so as we go from this place and as we understand a little more of this truth that one day we'll stand and give an account of our service and our life as a believer, Lord, help that to be like a keel on a ship that keeps it upright and going forward, never floundering and going back.
And so, Lord, we pray for your hand of grace to be continually upon us and to challenge us and to shape us and mould us as we read the Scriptures to be more like you. May we be equipped in every good thing to do your will. May you work in us that which is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.